Uh, The Old Testament reading this morning uh, is Psalm 22 from verses 1 to 21, and you can find it on page 434 of the Red Church Bibles. Psalm 22. To the leader, according to the deer of the dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me, from the words of my groaning? O my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our ancestors trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not human, scorned by others and despised by the people. All who see me mock at me. They make mouths at me. They shake their heads. Commit your cause to the Lord. Let him deliver. Let him rescue the one in whom he delights. Yet it was you who took me from the womb. You kept me safe on my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth, and since my mother bore me, you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Many bulls encircle me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My mouth is dried up like a pot's herd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs are all around me, a company of evildoers encircles me. My hands and feet have shriveled, I can count all my bones, they stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes amongst themselves, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far away. O my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. For the horns of the wild oxen you have, from the horns of the wild oxen you have rescued me. This is the word of the Lord. Well, over the last uh, few weeks during what uh, is traditionally called Lent, um, we've been walking with Jesus to the cross as a spiritual discipline of self-reflection and repentance. At the uh, start of uh, his gospel, John writes that the light uh, shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And it's pretty clear that as Jesus hangs on uh, the cross, beaten and bloody and broken, that this is a moment of darkness. Uh, He was a perfect person, not not perfect in a sort of shallow and brittle, airbrushed sense of perfect, but deeply holy, consecrated to all that is good and beautiful and true in total love and service of his Father, Uh, one whose life in the world brought only blessing to people and the response was to pursue his execution through an utterly corrupt process, even to the point of having a terrorist released instead. That's what we're seeing. It's darkness. And the the coldly calculating sharing of the the meagre spoils of this crucifixion only adds to that scene. Uh, There are are presumably four soldiers, half the sort of standard smallest unit in the Roman army, uh, dividing his clothes into four parts until they come to the prized possession, 
which is a seamless tunic, an undergarment. Now, don't, don't misunderstand this. Uh, there's nothing especially valuable about this undergarment. It's just that it was slightly better quality than the rest of Jesus' clothes. It was like best and less rather than Vinny's. And their care as they navigate the means by which this garment is not destroyed, in contrast to their evil carelessness about destroying the Lord of life whom they have nailed to the cross, it's just chilling. Greed knows no limits on its triviality. Darkness. The darkness is clear. But what are we to make of the claim by John that the light shines into this darkness and the darkness has not overcome it? It looks pretty clear that the darkness is winning here. And and it's important to understand John's claim. It's not just that darkness is eventually overcome in resurrection. Uh, That might undo the darkness, but it doesn't necessarily dispel it in a blaze of light. No, the, the claim here is that there is a relationship of causation, a crucial spiritual connection between the darkness and the light. That it's by the very lifting up of Jesus, full pun intended, that he will draw people to himself. That's how Jesus put it. And John makes sure that we understand that connection by the picture he paints to describe the scene. We're going to look at another, uh, the two headings then, the darkness of the cross and the light of the cross. Well, first in the darkness of the cross. Uh, John makes it clear that to understand uh, this moment, this crucifixion, we need to see it through the lens of Psalm 22. That's where he quotes from in identifying the casting of lots for Jesus' clothes as the fulfilment of Scripture. And of course, in in doing this, uh, John himself was not alone. Although uh, John uh, chose uh, not to record it, Jesus uh, himself has Psalm 22 burst forth from his lips as he endures the physical and spiritual agony of the cross in what's called the cry of dereliction. My God, my God... Why have you forsaken me? Which is verse 1 of Psalm 22. And in in Psalm 22, 15, we read, My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. So that it's hardly accidental that in John chapter 19, verse 28, we read after this, when Jesus knew that all was now finished, he said, in order to fulfill the scriptures... I am thirsty. Now, Psalm 22 is a psalm of David. It describes a public spectacle, a man uh, scorned by others and despised by the people, verse 6, one who is mocked by all who see him. But, But it's not just a public spectacle. In fact, it's a public execution. The psalmist writes as one who is dying, poured out like water, verse 14. His heart is like wax, it's melted within him. And although if uh, you've got your glasses on and you have an especially good vision, uh, you'll see that there's a little footnote in verse 16 saying that the Hebrew here is uncertain. Many translations render it, 
they have pierced my hands and my feet. Now, the thing about it is this. Uh, David, the author of the psalm, uh, experienced uh, severe moments in his life. He was absolutely hard-pressed. But nothing actually like this. There's nothing in David's life that corresponds to this description. And what John is saying in, in sending us to Psalm 22 in, in these myriad ways is that in the cross of Jesus Christ, Psalm 22 is finally a role with a player. Until now, it had kind of hung there in history. But now in this cross, this crucifixion, John says it's a song that finally gets sung. It's a role that finally gets played. So that what's going on in the stripping of Jesus Christ, which is what sends John to Psalm 22, as, as his clothes are taken from him and bargained over and bettered for, the judgment of God on sin is coming down on Jesus, particularly in the form of abandonment. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there is a perfect spiritual logic to that. You see, in its essence, underneath all the sort of behaviours that, that, that sin might consist of, in, in, uh, behind all the kind of decisions that are involved in our kind of imperfections, and, and not just imperfections, but the, the ways in which our selfishness uh, is expressed and all that kind of stuff, behind that, underneath it all, Sin is fundamentally to do with seeking to get away from the living and true God standing at the centre and soul of your life and putting something else there. The parable uh, that Jesus told of uh, the prodigal son, uh, much loved, immediately accessible, entirely believable, uh, is just a perfect picture of this. He wants to get away. He has everything from the Father. He lacks nothing, and yet bizarrely, terribly, his only thought is to get away. Now, of course, that's, that's uh, deeply self-destructive. Sin always is deeply self-destructive. We're made by God. Uh, we are his works of art bearing his own stamp, his own brush stroke pattern, if you like, his image. And just like plants need the sun, we need the light and life of God at the centre of our being. Sin is always self-destructive. To turn our backs on him is to turn our backs on life. And so for God to turn his back on us, you see, is both utterly just, it fits, it's right, it makes sense, there's a logic to it. And at the same time, it's infinitely terrible. There is no judgment more just than to give us what we want in this, to grant us what we've sought. And at the same time, there's no judgment more terrible than to give us what we want. For what we've wanted is our own destruction, our own eternal death. And, and by sending us to Psalm 22, you see, with with these events, these words on Jesus' lips, these, this moment, 
John is saying to us in the cross, Jesus is getting what we tragically and foolishly want and rightly and justly deserve. That the freezing darkness of the soul that is rightly ours falls on him. That he is stripped of all that makes for life. That is the darkness of the cross. But the the really interesting thing about Psalm 22 is the way that it ends. It goes on in verse 27, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before him, for dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. The, The consequence of this death in Psalm 22 is nothing less than enormous blessing. As light floods the world, as the the ends of the earth turn to the Lord, all the families of the nations worship before him. So second then, what is the light of the cross? And what we see here is that in the cross of Christ there are two immeasurable blessings that flow. Uh, Firstly, Jesus covers our shame. And second, he puts us in family. Now, although the the video that uh, we see, uh, which, uh, just to remind you, is just the straight words of Scripture read. It's uh, it's from the NIV uh, I learned uh, this week, uh, not the ESV, the New International Version. Uh, So it depicts things which just helps fire your imagination, and sometimes that's really helpful, and other times that's misleading. Our video is is modest, and and rightly so. Uh, But the Roman Empire did not uh, quite have those sensibilities. And it ensured maximum humiliation and shame for its crucified victims by killing them naked. Because the thing about nakedness uh, is it's pathetically defenceless vulnerability, right? That's, that's what it does to you. You have no defence against the weather just at a physical level or from stones, uh, you know, spiking into you. But of course the shame of nakedness is much more than that. It's not just that you can't keep objects out. Uh, in the end, it's, it's much more to do with the fact that you can't keep people's eyes out. Uh, that they see everything. And, and this experience of, of being seen, of physical and then spiritual nakedness as the experience of shame, comes to, in the scriptures, be used as a, as a metaphor uh, in the Bible, nakedness is always associated with shame. And you, and you see in Middle Eastern culture still today, uh, the, the very significant, very deep concern to, to not display flesh. In, in the Bible, there's only one place, of course, where nakedness is not associated with shame, right? It's, it's right at the beginning, uh, in the narrative before the first sin in the Garden of Eden. Uh, you, you may recall, they were naked, And they were not ashamed. Why? Well, the the point is that when they're in perfect relationship with God, there's nothing to hide. There's there's nothing to control. There's no need for that great game that we all play so much of our lives under the surface given over to playing the game of impression management. You you know impression management? You're aware of yourself enough to know just how adept you've become and how much of your time and thought is spent managing people's impression of you. 
in the garden there was no need for spin because in a perfect relationship with God you can be utterly transparent and vulnerable because there it's possible to be entirely known and entirely loved at the same time. But when we turn from God and and this sort of unravelling occurs making that dreadful move to cut ourselves off from the loving lordship of our creator and sustainer, the great lover of our souls, we, we need to cover up. And so you remember in the, in the narrative, the first thing that happens is they, they cover themselves. They hide. They hide from each other and from God. They hide because they now have something to hide. It was, it was Mark Twain, of all people, you know the author? Uh, who noted that man, quote, man is the only animal that blushes. It's a very interesting observation, isn't it? Man is the only animal that blushes, and he goes on, he says, and the only, only animal that needs to. Of course, we're dealing much more than, with an embarrassment here. Uh, psychologist David Atkinson puts it this way, shame is your sense of unease with yourself at the heart of your being. Now it's worth uh, pausing here to make sure we've understood th- this point, this, this issue of shame. Shame is, I would suggest, an extraordinarily deep issue of our hearts. Uh, what's on view here is not just a passing moment of embarrassment, uh, those are common enough, and easily enough passed on from. Now the shame, in the sense that we're talking about it, is something that touches our souls. It's underneath all the bluster. In fact, uh, so much of our bluster, so much of our competence, can actually be an expression of our shame. Because what shame drives you to do is an endless cycle of wide-eyed effort at just hustling to demonstrate your worthiness. Worthiness, which is the opposite of shame. By performing and perfecting and pleasing and proving. Why do you boast about your achievements? I mean, all very subtly, of course. Or or perhaps boast about your failures, getting them out there before anyone else can. It's the same thing, isn't it? It's, it's attempts to cover up, to, to clothe ourselves, to protect the sad, feeble little nakedness of our souls. Why, why are we so passive often in the face of the bullying of others or, on the other hand, um, bullies ourselves from, ourselves from time to time? But to cover up. Dealing with shame either by being over-passive or over-aggressive. And and the first blessing of the cross is that in the stripping naked of Jesus Christ, as uh, the author of the letter to the Hebrews puts it, in this moment of disregarding the shame, he's bearing our shame precisely so we can be clothed. Uh, There are many um, beautiful references to the way that the the result of what God does for us is to clothe us. The prophet Isaiah writes, 
Uh, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My whole being shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Psalm, uh, Isaiah 61, from which Jesus quotes at the start of his ministry. Here is what you might call um, gifted or granted worthiness. The dissolving of shame in the grace of God in Jesus Christ. It's a, as a gift. It's not something you earn. It's not something uh, you make happen. It's not yours by right or by work. It's not something you scramble and muster and gather together. A bestowed worthiness which means that it never becomes brutal or domineering, you see. It's a, it's a gift that melts your heart. And, and what that means is that it gives you this kind of wonderfully gentle confidence. Not, not the kind of self-confidence that's endlessly bruising others because it doesn't really care what impact it has. You know, you know people sort of overly self-confident, well, actually often there's something other going on there, isn't there, too? No, this is a gentle confidence that Jesus Christ has seen everything about you, in fact, born everything for you, and he's still there. And when this gifted worthiness, an, an external reality applied to you, melts your heart, it means you give up trying to control how people see you. You, you let them in. You let them in physically into your space, your life, your home. You let them in spiritually. So you stop trying to keep people at a safe but lonely distance. It means you're not devastated by criticism anymore. On the cross, you've seen it all. That's you. The ugliness that is true about you is there and Jesus Christ has willingly and lovingly borne it for you. It means it can't touch you anymore. You can tell just how deeply this has entered into your soul by the way you react to criticism. And it means, uh, finally, that you can love. Our philosopher Soren Kierkegaard put it this way. He said, In every man there is something which to a certain degree prevents him from becoming perfectly transparent. That's what we're talking about. And he goes on, But he who cannot reveal himself cannot love. And he who cannot love is the most unhappy man of all. Now this is the light shining into the darkness of our souls and the darkness not overcoming it because Jesus covers our shame. But, but secondly, um, Jesus puts us in family. And it's a, it's a very touching moment, isn't it? This sort of uh, tender moment of care even in his utter extremity. Jesus blesses his mother. We learn that there are some mourners at the scene. Um, I take it there are four women uh, there at least in this little uh, uh, picture. Uh, there's Jesus' mother, Mary. There's Jesus' mother's sister, who presumably is a different person from Mary, the wife of Clopas. Otherwise, what you'd have is G uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, having a sister also called Mary. And that's you know, pretty unlikely that they get the same name 
her two sisters in the same family. Um, so her sister, and then Mary, wife of Clopas, and then Mary Magdalene. So four women, and in addition to that, the beloved disciple, um, our author John, uh, presumably sufficiently young, one commentator suggested um, without a beard yet, uh, or maybe he was like me, he just couldn't grow one. But uh, he, he was just very young, uh, and, and the women and John are not a threat. You see, that's why they're not hustled up, arrested, and, and put on a cross as well. Uh, they're all there. And as Jesus is dying, he gives a gift. Verse 26, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing beside her, he said to his mother, woman, here is your son. Then he said to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. Now, if, uh, if you're familiar with John's Gospel, you may recall that right at the beginning uh, of the Gospel, uh, at the wedding uh, which took place uh, in Cana, uh, Mary comes to Jesus for help um, and, and approaches him. And uh, it's a little bit awkward, actually. Jesus is quite brusque with Mary. Uh, you remember, he says, Woman, what have you to do with me? Uh, and, uh, you know, some translations try and soften it down a little bit. Uh, but it's, it's really pretty... Whoa. Uh, I, 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 my mum wouldn't have... Anyway, we won't go there. Um, in the end, he does uh, what she wants, uh, what she asks. But he's kind of dismissed her at this point um, and says, my hour has not yet come. And it's not an accident, I'd suggest, that Jesus uses precisely the same form of address here. Now, a woman. It, it's a it's a it's slightly distancing uh, form of address, as though and and I think it's uh, as though Jesus is saying that the blessing that you sought then at the wedding of Cana before my hour had come. That blessing is now actually available; is now able to be given to you. And and what he does is he creates a new family. He gives John to her as son, and her to John as mother. Now, um, it's worth just noting how deeply culturally challenging this is. Uh, it challenges our, challenges our culture of modern Western individualism. So, of course, the mantra of our age is that uh, you have to be true to yourself, that you have to uh, search deep within yourself, you have to get in touch with your inmost desires, and uh, you're an individual. And to the degree that other people connect with all of that, then that's all to the good. To the degree that other people don't connect with that, then it's time to move on. But, but the idea that there are bonds which transcend your individual expression is, is kind of nutty in our culture. And yet in a fierce rebuke to this kind of individualism, Jesus says that essential to what he's doing is to put us into family with one another. As the, as the elder son, his job was to take care of his mother. Uh, now most likely an older widow and therefore socially and financially in a very precarious position. And he does it by establishing this new family. And you, you wonder how John felt about it, right? There he is, a young man, life ahead of him. Now burdened with the relationship of care and protection that he doesn't really ask for. It's not like he's seeking it. Doesn't actually get a lot of choice in it. It's constituted not by him searching deep within himself and deciding what he would like. To, it's constituted by Jesus. 
We aren't all just individuals. We belong to each other, at least according to Jesus. So there's a real challenge here to modern Western cultural values, but on the other hand, there's a real challenge here to uh, traditional non-Western culture as well. Where so often, whether it's African or Middle Eastern or Asian or Latin American, uh, family is everything. Family's everything. Uh, and perhaps even to the point where it becomes the single most important thing. It's the loyalty that drives out all other loyalties. So that a pleasing and serving parents, fulfilling family expectations, can even become a significant spiritual blockage. But note what Jesus does. You see, we know from John chapter 7 that Jesus has younger brothers. Um, they don't believe in him. They think he's a, 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 a wacko, actually. They, they've sort of written him off. And so Jesus entrusts his mother not to his brothers, not to her other sons, actually. Jesus entrusts Mary to John. And in fact, uh, it's noted she goes to live from that day with John. In other words, this now is family, defined not by blood, at least not by your blood, but by his blood. This is the key bond that we now experience. Do you see what Jesus is doing? Um, he demotes individualism and kinship at the same time. And that is incredibly freeing. That is incredibly freeing. In Christ, no longer is community defined by social class or good family background. It's not about race or culture or wealth or schooling. In Christ, there is such beautiful freedom and joy. Here is the end of snobbery, the end of bigotry, the end of racism, because in Christ we are bound to one another not by anything about ourselves that can become an, a boundary, do you see? Nothing can become a line of division. It's not like you can say to someone, you're, you're not like me, and therefore... It's true, you're not like me. But what binds us together is not what we're like. It's that we're given to one another, whether we like it or not, actually. And he gives us his family so that we're sisters and brothers to one another. And of course, uh, the thing about family is that it's a matrix of relationships that is richly textured, unconditional, with a profound intensity and influence about it. It's unconditional because we all know we don't get to choose our family. Uh, you don't get to choose them in and you don't get to choose them out. There is a stuckness about family, which means that we just learn to make space for one another rather than to move on. We learn to become expert reconcilers rather than uh, do what so often happens in our culture, which is to simply sweep niggles under the carpet to pretend until you can't be bothered pretending anymore and then you just move on. 
And at the same time, there's an intensity about family, a, a profound engagement with one another for the fairly obvious reason that you can't hide from your family. They really do know you warts and all. They've seen you. They've seen you when the guard is down. And there is an enormous influence in family. Uh, the older you get, uh, the more you realise that your deep determination not to be like your mother or your father comes to nothing, actually. And in fact, quite likely, your deep determination probably only serves to make it even more likely that you'll turn out just like them. And you see it, and you catch yourself saying it, and you thought, that's what he says. I, I, I find myself saying more things like my father this decade than last decade scares me. Enormous influence on each other. And you see, this is the family vision of the church of Jesus Christ. Baptised into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So you remember what we say? We receive and welcome one another as children of the same heavenly Father. And therefore as sisters and brothers to one another. Our, our life together. Our pattern of relationship to each other is not that of a club of mutual interest in some sport or hobby. No, Jesus is unbelievably bold. There is to be a deep unconditionality to how we get on so that you put up with me and I put up with you and that's just how it is. Because Jesus has given us to each other and we can't undo that. There's to be a significant intensity to our community so that we're not just passing ships, you know, turn up for a little bit of time on a Sunday or something like that, but real and open and vulnerable with each other. And a pattern of deep influence as we encourage one another and rebuke one another. We say things to each other that other people wouldn't dare say because they'd be too scared to say it because they know that the relationship would be at stake, but we know the relationship is not at stake because it's not formed by whether we make choices. It's formed by Jesus who gives us to each other. And so we weep with those who are weeping. We don't sort of shuffle off in discomfort. We rejoice with those who are rejoicing. We don't feel a kind of jealousy or need to calm them down. We bump into each other again and again and again and, and what that's doing is nudging and pushing us to reflect more and more the character and heart of Jesus Christ. So this is, as you come again to the foot of the cross, as you stand there, in your mind's eye, see Jesus bearing your sins, stripped Stripped so that you can be clothed. Shamed so that you are worthy. And giving you in family community to sisters and brothers in Christ.